Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet and rather deserted Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and today I'm joined by Kieran O'Donoghue. Kieran is a Director and Human Resources Consultant at HR Champions, a leading independent HR and training consultancy in Gloucester. Uh, Kieran, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Thank you, Scott. Good morning. Good morning to you. Now, Kieran, this podcast, first and foremost, is all about the topic of leadership and effective leadership at that. But what does that word leader actually mean to you? Um, well, there's, there's so many different answers for that question, isn't it? Um, I think for me, if you wanted uh, to put leadership into um, into just sort of one or two words, I think uh uh, authenticity is probably one that comes out, you know, very strongly. Um, I think that um, you know, great leaders are authentic and uh, uh, passionate, believe in uh, in what they're doing, uh, and and that's what makes them leaders. That's what makes them uh, the people that others want to follow. Absolutely. So leaders essentially are people who are examples to be followed. That's essentially um, what you've said there, isn't it? They've got to, um, especially in a business context, leaders should be leading from the top and leading by example. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, I mean, um, the um, the inspiration, I suppose, that that, uh, the people, that good leaders are able to demonstrate uh, uh, is what needs to come through. Because if you're an inspiring person, uh, and you're, you you become uh, a person that others want to follow, uh, and a person other other people aspire to be. Um, and I think that's all all part of uh, you know your your belief in and, and your passion and, and what you do and how and how you carry that out. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned things there like passion and belief. Um, those are essentially qualities that people have to have themselves to be able to succeed. They're qualities that essentially are innate. You're born with those, but are great leaders born in themselves or do you think that people can develop and learn how to become a good leader throughout their life and their career? Okay, the, the old uh, sort of nature-nurture uh, debate uh, you know, is, is, is one that we can talk about uh, in a, a whole different topic. But certainly I, I do believe that um, there are certain things that people can learn that will make them great leaders. And for example, um, uh, one of those that, that we always talk about is self-awareness. So if um, uh, if a person is, is aware of their own behavior and aware of how they come across to others, then um, it, that will help them on their journey and you know, help them to become a, a great leader. And it's that that we what that's what we try to inspire us, what we try to teach is is how to be aware of your behaviors. Um, and how those behaviours affect others. Absolutely, because a leader, especially in a business context, has to realise that it's not all about them, don't they? It's uh, very much about the people around them. And not just, of course, the people that they surround themselves with and their calibre, but also the impact that they as a leader have on them. Yes, and that differs from person to person. So, for example, if we talk about, you know, coming back to that point of, you know, our, our leaders, our leaders born is, is a natural uh, a natural thing to be a leader. Then, then some of those people do that automatically, almost um, almost without realising uh, is that they they'll adjust their behaviours 
to others in, in order to get the best out of those people. So what, what I mean by saying that we teach people or, or we, we encourage people to be self-aware is that if you can learn to be self-aware, then, yeah, then that becomes automatic and your behavior to others becomes automatic. So you'll, what you'll find yourself doing is adjusting uh, to the way that, other, that you're going to get the best from others. So, so whilst we say, yes, great leaders, great leaders can be born, and of course they can be, they're the people that, because of this authenticity, because of this passion, they automatically you know, you know, live and breathe that, and, and people look up to that, and, and they can make this automatic adjustment to get the, the best from people. For something to learn, then if you can learn that self-awareness, you can learn, look at your own behaviors, then that's how you can, you, you can turn that into um, you know, adjusting for, for other people, adjusting to get the most out of others, and, and then you can build from there and, and improve your leadership skills. Absolutely. And um, alongside those qualities, um, it's all about the culture that that leader also instills um, at that business um, and amongst those people, isn't it? That's um, of huge importance in terms of getting the best out of people and really managing them, isn't it? Well, well, culture indeed. And culture, you know, we, we always say that culture comes from the top because it's, it's the leader's um, uh, behaviours that, that drive everything else. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a good phrase that... that um, People who are like one another like one another. So, what you, what you tend to find is is that um, uh, people people mimic leaders or people mimic other people's behaviour in order to like and be liked. Uh, and so, uh, having a good culture that, that that flows down, you know, starts from those those um, those good behaviours from the top uh, that that others then. Uh, sort of mimic and, and aspire to uh, and then uh, as I say that, that will sort of write down through an organisation. Yes absolutely and um, if we look at your um, career for a moment um, as well uh, Kieran did you always imagine yourself quite early on that you would end up in a position of leadership yourself and having to lead a team? I, I think it's always something I've aspired to I, th- I think certainly that um, uh, you know uh, throughout my my career, my, my various jobs, and so on. That um, I've never seen myself as as being um, someone who would who would stay um, uh, sort of lower down. And you know, I've always aspired to, to to be a leader, a leader team at some stage. But I think that's, that's a really valid point here. Is that as well as great leaders, you know, there needs to be great followers. And uh, not everybody is a leader. Not everybody aspires to be a leader. Uh, but the people that 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 follow those great leaders can be great followers, and we need those people equally equally in a business. You certainly do as well, and it it brings into question this idea that a leader, a good leader, especially surrounds himself, if you will, with positive people who, again, are going to have the qualities that will complement what um, the uh, the leader does. Absolutely. Um, we talk about um, influences um, quite a lot and how leaders can influence, of course, the people around them and indeed vice versa. Um, would you say that there have been any influences um, on your own career as well, Kieran, be they individuals or experiences? Um, that's quite a difficult one. I suppose in the position uh, we're in now where we, um, you know, we're a business that, that sort of uh, educates others in leadership, uh, I, I, I suppose I tend to find myself looking back and, and picking holes in, 
in my old old bosses and that sort of thing. Um, perhaps I shouldn't do that. But um, uh, I suppose early on, I think in in my career, I think I, I you know there's a few people, a few of my managers and so on that you that you would aspire to, and they were the ones that were uh, a little bit maverick, perhaps. Um, uh, I think if we come back to the point where um, people aspire aspire to others and aspire to leaders, you know, and again to this this idea of, of, of passion and being passionate. Um, I think those people that are a little bit maverick, the ones that uh, let's say bend the rules, you know, they're doing that because they've got a they've got a deeply held belief in what they're doing is the right thing, and maybe they they need to bend the rules in order to you know, achieve their goals. And I suppose those are the things I've learned is that is that um, sometimes being a little bit off the wall, being a little bit maverick uh, in in what you do, is fine so long as you're doing it for the right reasons. So long as you're doing it because uh, you believe it, it's the right thing. Absolutely, and it can often be such um, individuals who are. Um, inspirations uh, to people. Um, a, a lot of people who um, you may um, ask, especially in a business context, who their influences are, do often talk about former colleagues, former managers. And in a way, that can quite often go under the radar, that sort of effective leadership. Because when we think of leaders today, we think of sports personalities, we think of politicians, we instantly think of celebrities. Um, with that in mind, do you think that good leadership is as celebrated and indeed recognised as much as it should be in the UK? I, th- I think it is. I think um, a sp- certainly in sport, those sorts of things, I think that it is um, celebrated and recognised. Uh, equally, I think that it's, um, you know, I, I, I think that quite, quite often poor leadership is is sometimes, unfortunately, um, uh, how can I put this, it, you know, if, if things things are brought down because of it, or, or um, you know, people are, uh, are targeted um, when things don't go quite right, even even when um, uh, even when you know, as I come back to what they think they're doing is right, it, it doesn't always work out because you know you've got to make great decisions sometimes, and even if those decisions aren't right, the fact that you've maintained your passion, the fact that you've um, made those brave decisions. You know that's that's still a sign of great leadership, and it's a shame that you know when things don't go so well, you know th- despite the best efforts, uh, um, the uh, the media, let's say, or, or or people in general, aren't as gracious uh, as they are when things are, uh, go swimmingly, and and you know uh, you know we we win at the end and, and all the rest of it. So. So it's a bit of it's a bit of a shame. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, I suppose. But yes, I do think we celebrate success, but I think equally we're sometimes can be a little a little a little bit too quick to uh, to you know to come down hard against failure when actually you know it's still failure in uh, the light of great leadership. Absolutely. And it's a really interesting point as well that brings us back onto that idea of it being a learning and development process because leaders won't be going into a role ready made for that role and they're not going to get every decision right, are they? They are going to make mistakes and they are going to have to learn from them. Absolutely. As I say, so long as 
um, you know, they are making those decisions for the right reasons because they're passionate about them, because they believe them, because they believe um, in what they're doing, then, you know, it's it's okay to make mistakes. And, and But we shouldn't dwell on them. We shouldn't, we shouldn't say, we should just say, okay, we've made a mistake, um, but, you know, it's not the end of the world. We can get, get over this. We can move forward. And that in itself is uh, another sign of great leadership. Absolutely, that ability to uh, learn as well and um, really um, progress from uh, the mistakes that one makes. It's a huge importance. Um, I am conscious, Kieran, um, of uh, running out of time, but before we do go about wrapping things up, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months is going to hold for yourself, for HR champions, and what you really hope to achieve in that time, particularly beyond the outbreak of COVID-19 as well. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, with the the COVID-19 thing... um, you know, it has put uh, uh, things have slowed down significantly, um, and uh, I think probably the the whole—I uh, was going to say the whole country—but I think probably the whole planet um, is going to be in a, in a position where um, we don't really know what the future holds. We've certainly uh, jumped—you uh, know—kept things going. We've jumped on the whole um, side of things with moving online, um, trying to run um, and support our clients uh, on an online basis. We've had absolutely fantastic response um, and we're hoping that you know that will just continue onwards um, we still aim to uh, to continue to grow uh, that's that's always been our plan and, and continues to be and, and we'll just have to adapt um, and I think as long as everybody else adapts and, uh, and accepts the, the necessary change then I think you know we should we should still uh, be positive and uh, and be ready to bounce back Absolutely. And let's hope that today's leaders as well, both in business and in politics, can really take this in their stride and really help with that upward trajectory as well once we do sort of start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I have to say um, today, uh, Kieran, it's been an absolute pleasure um, having you on the uh, the programme. It's also been incredibly insightful. And I think it would be fantastic to perhaps have you back on in a few months' time to see how things have panned out and look at all of this retrospectively. So thanks ever so much for coming onto the programme, speaking with myself this morning for the benefit of the listeners. Okay, thank you, Scott. It'll be a pleasure to return. It would be fantastic, absolutely. Um, coming up next on the programme, we hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. I hope you enjoy listening to Jonathan's conversation just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. That's coming up now. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. 
Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget 
how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room. For the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London. And to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough, privilege I'm sure no doubt to serve as captain and whether you like it or not you become the focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying: okay, if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing 
a team. Uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because. They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of cricket the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so i definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 world cup i thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure um and i knew in order to do that we had to com 
completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at the times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired. Another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women 
young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the, uh, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much... Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so what, what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely yeah. no they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. 
And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.